Welcome to the Same Side Selling Podcast. I am your host, Ian Altman. So how do you end up with the best team ever? So a good friend of mine, David Burkus, who I've known for years, wrote a book called Best Team Ever. And I was like, oh, you know what? Hey, this is great. I've known David for a long time. Hey, David, send me a copy of the book. Maybe we'll have you on the podcast. And of course, I started reading the book as kind of like research for doing a podcast interview. And then I got hooked on it. And all of a sudden, it's like one in the morning, and I'm still reading this book into the wee hours of the morning. My wife's like, well, what are you doing? I'm reading David's book. It's awesome. And so David's background is as an organizational psychologist. He's a former business professor who since turned to the dark side as a speaker and author and, um, and really is an advisor to help people in a wide range of areas, not the least of which is how do you build these great teams? And so I know this is an issue that is common for a lot of us, which is how do we build these high-performing teams? And when I started reading David's book, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to hear the same stuff I've heard before. And that's not the case. So I wanted to make sure that people heard from David. So let's welcome him on. And David Burkus, welcome to the show. Oh, thank thank you so much for having me. Although although after that glowing intro, I'm sort of like, well, why am I here? Right? Exactly. Thanks, thanks, Ian. Like this is a this is a great solo episode. Well, uh, yeah, we'll just put the URL for the book in the show notes, and we're, we're good to go. No, exactly. And and we will put the URL for the for the book in the show notes. But uh, the, but I mean, really, it's it's one of these things where I read a lot of books, and there's always something I get out of them. And what I found is that when reading Best Team Ever. I kept copying and pasting little clips into my notes for things that I want to do with my teams or things that I want to suggest to clients of mine to do with their teams. And the book is filled with stories that range from businesses to sports to space travel with a common thread of how do you build these high-performing great teams. So let's take a step back from that. And what's broken in the world, especially of business, that you're addressing in this book? Well, I think there's a couple of things broken. Uh, I mean, you and I wouldn't have jobs if stuff in business wasn't broken, right? So there's that. Uh, really, I think there's two big things broken that I'm trying to fix in this book. The, the first is that we, for maybe 30 years or so, in a very well-meaning way, have been talking about company culture as a means to drive performance, you know, whether it's increased sales among sales reps or increased retention, drive down, you know, turnover rates, whatever it is. We're talking about company culture. And the, and the truth is, I don't think company culture actually matters. I don't think it did before the pandemic, but my realization was during the pandemic, when everyone we could afford to send away from the office, we sent away. And so suddenly your experience of work wasn't the company, it wasn't the perks and benefits, it was the team or, or maybe teams that you were working on, right? Uh, and so I think team culture matters a whole lot more. I think culture is not something that just belongs to HR, it is every single leader. And so that means even if you lead a sales team, it's your job to take care of the culture of your team because people's experience of work is gonna be what it's like to work for your team. So, so that's thing number one. I think the other thing that's broken is we still have this very um, talent hungry approach to how to develop performance, meaning we just try and recruit superstars. We just say, oh, this person has a great track record of success in the past, let's bring them over, even though maybe it's a whole new industry or a, to a totally different team culture that we're on or, or totally different personalities, sets, et cetera. We just think if we hire stars, we can hire our stars out of our way of a bad team. And that's not true at all. As we say right in the very first 
uh, intro in the book, talent doesn't make the team. It turns out the team makes the talent. And you can think of this, think of, pick your sport and you can think of easily examples of trying to recruit your way out of a, a performance slump as a sports team. And, and then teams that have a great culture that really don't have a great uh, salary cap and end up overperforming expectations, right? And so those are sort of the two things we take in, which is it's everyone, every leader at every level's responsibility to, to manage the culture of their team. And then the other is that you can't just recruit your way out of a crappy team. You have to actually work on the team dynamics. And when you do, you'd be surprised. Even people you thought were gonna be mediocre performers might turn into stars. Yeah, and, and there's, so many, there's so many great insights that you have in here. When people on their own say, oh, you know what, I'm gonna create a high-performing team. You mentioned the idea of the corporate culture. Oh, we're gonna set mission, vision, and goals, and we're gonna have this corporate culture that's gonna be mandated from the top down. Or, oh, I'm gonna recruit this high performer. What are some of the other traps or mistakes that you see people fall into? And, and of course, I'm sure it falls into things like, you know, various types of personality profiles and things like that that they might do, but what are some of the most common traps you see people fall into? Yeah, yeah. Well, the, depending on the size of the organization, I, I think they vary, right? Like, so if you're a small business owner, you've, you've got a small, maybe if everybody reports to you, it's really easy to think of a, a sort of team culture um, dynamic. But in larger organizations, I mean, I, I, I lose track of how many times I work with uh, an organization large enough to have a quote unquote C-suite, right? Uh, a senior leadership team, whatever term you want to use for it. And yet they're not really a team, right? Their chief marketing officer, chief revenue officer, chief operations officer, chief tax off, blah, 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 blah. And they're all actually just representatives from their own little fiefdoms. And you can't really build a great company that way, right? If your senior leadership team doesn't operate as a team, nobody else will down the line. So that is one thing that actually does trickle down, right? That's is that sense of whether or not we're actually a team. The other said, you know, I made it, I made a joking reference to personality differences, what have you. And then, and then you kind of picked up on it. Actually, one of the big mistakes I see with a lot of people is they just say that, right? Like our approach to team building is let's do a personality test, right? Or, or let's do a team building activity or something like that, where we, where we sit around and talk about our differences. And I make this joke often in my speeches that like, okay, it's great if we all want to take some hope, hopefully scientific personality tests, not like the myriad of unscientific ones, but like yep. it's great if we all figure out what each other's color or letter is or what have you. But like I don't need to know why, why Hanks you know, acts this certain way because of his color. What I need to know is why Hanks' emails are so long, right? <laughs> <laughs> or or I, need to know, I need to know why Ian texts me everything as opposed to email. Right? You know, I need to know work preferences. Yeah. Differences in how we work, not differences in our actual personality. And a lot of teams never actually dive into that. Hey, let's talk about how we each individually prefer to work and then build a collaboration style or a uniform set of rules for collaboration. Again, not on our personalities, but on our individual preferences and, and developing an understanding of that. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a personality assessment platform called Paradigm Personality. And a lot of what they focus on is um, is energy, uh, trait energy, and things that, okay, here's what gives somebody positive energy, and here's what mm -hmm. sucks energy out of them. And it's funny because they get into like sometimes very, very fine details, but all of a sudden as a team, they pull together and say, hey, look, this sucks the energy out of this person, but that same task energizes you. 
but you have something over here that you hate that they love. What if we yeah. switch those roles for you? And all of a sudden it's like they get amazingly high performance and people are like, oh, we've done personality assessments before. It's like, yeah, but before you were like a color or a shape or like it didn't matter. You were a letter. You didn't get into what motivates you and what gives you energy that all of a sudden creates these higher performing teams. So yeah. I, I, I totally get that that aspect of it. Yeah, and we see that all the time in the research. There's a lot of research on personality differences and personality-based team building and its application. And you know, we're, we're talking about tests, but there's a myriad of others. Let's go off and do a ropes course. Let's go venture crew together out on a mountain or something. Like that. And the number one universal finding on personality differences on teams is this. Unless you're doing something that people can translate back into, we're back in the office or the virtual office, and we're going to change our behavior in this way based on what we learned, it's a feel it's like candy. It's a feel-good exercise that has no nutritional value, right? Yeah. But to exactly the example you were giving, if it results in a conversation and then a commitment to say, here's how we're going to operate as a team now that we have that understanding of each other, then it's usually a worthwhile endeavor. Yeah. It's like, hey, we went on this, we went on this ropes course. And David kept pushing people off the top. So what's the conclusion? <laughs> David should not be on our team. Right? It's like, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, you know, that can be, <laughs> I suppose that can be helpful too. Right? <laughs> you know, that's it. Like that was our conclusion. Like he's not a team player and he's not good for the team. We also have to recruit a few people because he threw people off. We weren't cabled in. <laughs> but other than that, we're good. Yeah. Well, you, so actually you bring up, uh, okay, so we're, we're talking about misconceptions because you say he's not a great team player because he, you know, throws people off. And by the way, I totally would. If my objective is to scale the wall and you're in my way, I probably would, um, especially if it was you, Ian. But uh, that's one of the other, especially in sales roles, when I'm talking to chief revenue officers or sales managers, you know, district managers, that sort of thing, they inevitably come up to me with a question of like, okay, what do I do if I have a great performer, but he's not a great team player? Right. And it, I always get a kick out of this question because I'm like, that's the answer is right there. Is being a team player part of his job? Yeah. yeah. Then he's not actually a great performer. Right. Exactly. Like I know, I know he's selling. I get that. But if also part of his job is to help a mentor and he's not doing that, that needs to be reflected in your performance conversations. You yep. need to stop actually looking at that person as a great performer. Yep. Great. You also say in the book, and, and one of the things I love about the book is that not only do you talk about these concepts, you share great stories about them, but it's also you, you wrap up each chapter with here are specific steps that you can take with your team to actually implement some of these concepts. And you say that all top performing teams have three things, a common mm -hmm. understanding, psychological safety, and pro-social purpose. So talk a little bit about those because then we'll dive in deeper. Yeah, yeah. So those are when when you look at as I'm an organizational psychologist by training. So we study cultures and norms and behaviors and, and teams and, and all and, and what makes work suck and not suck and how to do more of the not suck and less of the suck. And so when you look across about 40 something years of research on teams and team performance, you one of the challenges is everybody likes to invent their own terminology. So it takes a while to sift through all of the data. And when you do, you can find various different lists of overlaps. The, the most concise one I ever found was five. And so I attempted to create one that's, I think three is a whole lot easier to remember. So that's why sure. we went with three. But I'll, I'll let us, Ian, you know this, but those of you who are listening, it's actually a trick because every one of them has two subcomponents. So it's actually a list of six, but you know, whatever. Don't tell um, anybody. So, right. So we have common understandings, uh, psychological safety and pro-social purpose. Common understanding, it's a bit of what we're already talking about with the personalities and, the, and understanding differences. It's a mix of 
clarity and empathy, or you could think of it as clarity of the tasks and clarity of the team. So not only do I know what's expected of me and I know what other people are doing and I trust they're gonna do what they say they're gonna do, I understand, hey, this is what gives this person energy. This is what a request for help from that specific person looks like, because that can vary by people, right? Um, and these are the areas where I can make a contribution helping the team. So we have clarity of that team as well. And so that, that the catch-all term I use for that is common um, understanding. Sometimes in the literature, it's called shared understanding as well. Um, but that's what that is. Psychological safety is probably the one people listening are familiar with because it's, in, it's growing in popularity in terms of uh, a concept. Now, it's one of those things that seemed like it popped up about five years ago. The truth is Amy Edmondson's been doing research on this for 25 years. She's a brilliant, brilliant researcher from Harvard on all this. And it's essentially how well I feel the, safe, the team is safe for interpersonal risk-taking. And that seems like a weird term, but interpersonal risk-taking means you're know, speaking up when you disagree because we're talking about this client and somebody says something, you go, no, 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 I think this approach would work better. And you're publicly disagreeing, especially with the boss, but even with colleagues. That's a risk, right? When you're yeah. sharing a crazy idea, that's a risk. When you're admitting a failure, you're taking a risk that people are going to extract learning from that failure instead of just make fun of you and, and put you down, right? And so yeah. you need that level of candor uh, on a team to be able to solve complex problems. And, and most of the time, you know, the world we live in now, even selling is a, is a team-based problem-solving process, right? That's all, that's all it really is. Um, and it works better when everyone feels like they're on the same side. Look what I just worked in. Oh, look at that. There you look go. That. Anyway, right, right, right but down. you need that level of candor and you don't get it until you actually have psychological safety. Now we talk about that. We sometimes use the term trust. Teams need to trust each other. Yep. But the two components of psychological safety are trust and respect, which is actually how like I need to trust you in order to have a vulnerable moment with you, like speaking up when I disagree or admitting a failure, how you respond determines whether or not I trust you on the back end of that vulnerable moment. So it's yeah. both. And teaching teams to respond respectfully to conflict is probably the hardest part of building psychological safety, to not shoot an idea down, not argue with it, but listen to them and then think about, okay, where are we differing in our assumptions and how are we arriving at two different conclusions because we shouldn't be and building that sense of understanding. Um, that lack of respect for differing opinions, by the way, is also probably what's broken in, in Congress, at least in the United States, but that could be a whole other podcast. Um, and then the third component, transitioning away from any political talk here, the third component is that sense of pro-social purpose, which is I, one of the ones I'm, I'm biggest on talking about. This is what I just gave a recent uh, a TEDx talk about all of it, because I think we have purpose and vision and attempts to motivate people wrong a little bit. I think it's really important to share with people why we do what we do, right? And there's yep. a whole other person who popularized this idea we need to know why. But I think the best whys are actually answered with who, as in who is served by the work that we're doing. If we yep. actually close this deal, if we implement this, how does that positively affect people? We are social creatures and we've been wired over thousands and hundreds of thousands of years to judge our impact based on who we see is impacted by our work, not yep. metrics, not figures, not percentage of growth over time, but we made a difference to this specific person. And especially at a team level, in a, in a large organization especially, but at a team level where you're not in that top leadership team, you need to see how your specific team and your specific work ties in to that larger mission. And you need to see it through who, not just being told if you work hard, we'll achieve our mission, but show me who benefits from the work that we do. And I'll be much more motivated, not only to work personally, but to work alongside others as well. Yeah, there's a couple of things this, this makes me think of. One is in our same side improv game that we have for role play, where people are role playing sales situations, 
what I, what I always say is, look, for starters, this is this is an environment where you're hoping to mess up so you get feedback from people. And the first piece of feedback people are supposed to give you is, here's something that you did that I thought was really great that I liked. And then you're allowed to have one idea or suggestion of mm -hmm. what you think you should change. And then the person who was the subject of all this, their job is to say, and here's what I'm going to apply. Now, if three people give you feedback, it doesn't mean that you have to incorporate all three people's input. Right. And you might even say, you know what, these three things made me think of this fourth thing that's really the root of this problem. But it shows that, look, not only can I take the input, but I'm gonna respect the fact that you took the time to give me the input, and now I'm gonna to work to implement that. And so that side of it we found to be pretty insightful. And then I was working with a, a mutual friend of ours who's in the um, real estate business. They're, they're in the sell to rent um, space. And very often their team would talk about different things that they do of like what the company does. And I said, well, let's change that to, here's what our clients tell us they appreciate the most. And it's made a huge difference in their team because now all these people are like, hey, I took this person who runs a business and now they have virtually passive income. They spend less than an hour a month and they have all this income coming from them. Before they had one rental property and they were spending 10 hours a week. And now they have five rental properties and they spend less than an hour a month. And it's made it so that the team is energized when they talk to people. It's like, look, we just want to find people who are professionals or executives running other businesses who we can have that sort of impact for and yeah. forget everyone else. And it's really moved the needle for them. If you want to get top results for your team, take a look at the Same Side Selling Academy. Just visit samesideselling.com to learn more. Yeah, 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 yeah. So if, if you want to get super nerdy on that, right? Uh, so in the research literature, uh, we're looking at two different things, right? The, the first is, is what we org psychologists call organizational citizenship behaviors, which is when I'm motivated to do things that basically put we over me, that contribute to the whole company, to the whole team more than me personally. And yeah. one of the weirdest things about this pro-social idea, and this actually started, this, this research actually started with Uber professor Adam Grant, you know, yeah. um, he called it pro-social motivation. And one of the things he showed was that just hearing stories about how someone in your same role did something beneficial has a pro-social motivating effect on you to increase those organizational citizenship behaviors. So that's exactly, that's fancy nerdy terms for exactly what you're talking about, right? Ideally, you're able to find stories of existing clients that were served by that specific person or that specific team because that's like number one for motivating. But even yep. if you can't, just being able to share, hey, here's what this team did to help this client, that actually still helps your team um, get more motivated and work together more because they then do want to do exactly what you talked about, which is go out and find their own, they want to create their own story with them as the, as the, not the, not the hero, right. But the, the Yoda, they want to create their own as, as the guide, the mentor, the, the one who helped that other person. Yeah. So what, what was, I mean, the, the, the book, as I mentioned, um, best team ever is filled with all these great stories. What was the most surprising thing you learned or you get, this is, this is a, an either or choice you get to make, or what's your favorite story in the book because I kept having favorites and I'm like, well, which one should I pick? And I'm like, well, forget <laughs> it. Let's let David pick. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, that's hard. That's hard. So, um, the, the book actually kind of closes, not closes, but the very last chapter of the main part of the book is our mutual friend, Jesse Cole and the Savannah bananas, which is just yep. an incredible team that is so fans for 
first that I find it uh, amazing, but probably my truthfully, my favorite story. Um, and it kind of harkens as a callback to what we were talking about with senior leadership teams is the story of Alan Mulally and the turnaround at Ford Motor Company. Alan is probably my vote for greatest living CEO, right? And Alan was charged with turning around Ford in 2006 uh, or so before the, the Great Recession that forced the other two automakers into a bailout. They had already confronted their problems and were working on it. But the big thing he needed to do was to create that psychological safety that we were talking about, right? He needed the team to actually feel comfortable talking about where they were struggling in their various different departments in order to solve those things. And nobody wanted to do it. Ford was this crazy uh, intra-competitive company where if you showed a weakness, somebody would step over you to get to that new promotion level. I mean, these were people who thought that their competition was internal for promotion more than external against other car companies, right? Yeah. And so to get them uh, showing uh, their vulnerabilities was really, really difficult. Alan's plan was to do this regular weekly meeting where people would come up and give a status update on their their departments, what was going on, and they would color code the status update, red, yellow, or green. Green would be everything's perfect. Yellow is we have some setbacks, but we have a plan. Red is like, we don't know what was going on. Code red, you know, terrible situation, can you help? And for weeks after Alan started, every single report, every single slide, and every report was green, 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 green. Now, Ford was being judged on 320 different metrics. So 320 green slides over and over and over again, right? Of course. And Alan had to do all sorts of different things to try and coax that out. But what it actually took was the first person willing to be vulnerable was this guy named Mark Fields. And Mark was running the Edge launch. Edge was being produced in Oakville, Ontario, which is outside of Toronto. And, um, and they were running into a problem with production that, that had to be solved manually. In other words, we don't know what to fix on the factory line. So we are churning out cars at this rate and then we're fixing them at a much, a much slower rate because we have to fix them manually. So we've got a bottleneck and we're not gonna be able to meet our production quotas to be ready for launch. So we have to delay the launch. Basically, you can't hide that. As soon as it became obvious that he couldn't hide it, he sure. had to turn his slide red. And when he did at the regular weekly meeting, the rest of the room was just dead silent, right? Everybody thought Mark's about to get fired, right? Everybody thought, hmm, how do I position myself for Mark's job or what have you? Except Alan Mulally, who started clapping and said, hey, thank you, Mark, that's great visibility. Okay, what can we do about Mark's situation? And it, it's funny, it wasn't that week that turned the team around in terms of psychological safety. It was the following week, right? Because they all gave flower, here's how Mark, here's how we could help you or what have you, but pretty much all of them thought we're never gonna see Mark again. And so they come back the next week and they see Mark, and Mark had actually gotten there early and was sitting next to Alan Mulally at that point. So, <laughs> the, and Alan actually regularly says that was the moment, like the looks on the faces of people as they walk in the room and found out that Mark was actually rewarded for admitting a failure and rewarded for confronting the brutal facts, right? Was the moment that they felt like, oh, I can actually, trust this team. Remember what I talked about earlier, trust yep. and respect, right? So it was Alan having to demonstrate the respect to that vulnerability that actually turned the team around. And that wasn't the only, I mean, there was a, still a lot of work to do. There was a great, he, Alan tells this great story of trying to change the culture to be more respectful to each other. And there was one member of the senior leadership team that, that just couldn't do it. He was always cracking jokes at other people's expense and always sort of being that type of person. And Alan told me, you can't, we're not, we're not going to operate that like that anymore. And so you know, I, I need you to make a decision and I want you to know that whatever you decide, it's going to be okay. And of course the executive's like, wait, wait what do you mean? Okay. So I can, I can keep acting the way I'm acting. Goes, no, 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 no. If you want to be a part of the senior leadership team, you have to commit to being respectful. You can't have jokes at other people's expense. We're going to build this psychological safety. So you have to commit to it, but you don't have 
to be in your role. If you decide you want to leave Ford, I, it's okay. I won't take it personally. I'll help you find a new job, et cetera, right? Yeah. And I, I, I wish we had more leaders like that. I'm like, look, your behavior is toxic, and so I need you to make a choice. I love you. I want you to know whatever you choose, I support you. Right, so you can stay here or you can leave. That's that, what do I do with a great performer who's not a great team player? That's how you confront them. You go, look, I think you're great. I think you're producing, but I need you to change this behavior. And if you don't want to, that's okay, but you can't stay here and I'll support whatever decision you make. Let me know what you decide. Yeah, I, I love how you talk about in the book, you, you share the story of his first day as CEO at Ford. <laughs> a reporter asks him, what kind of yeah. car do you drive? Go ahead. And he goes, I mean, think about it. Okay, if you're listening, right? So yeah, a reporter, a very first day, first press conference, you're supposed to blah, 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 stock price, blah, 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 shareholder value. And they get to the Q&A and a reporter goes, what kind of car do you drive? And, and Alan goes, think about it. You're listening to this. What do you say? You're the new CEO of Ford Motor Company. Pick your answer. Alan says, I drive a Lexus. It's the finest car on the market. This is insane to me, right? But I mean, he followed up with the, okay, and we have potential to get there and I wouldn't have taken this job if we hadn't and what have you. But that was a moment, it was a public demonstration that we are gonna talk about the situation as it is so we can solve it. Now, the other two didn't do that, by the way, and that's why when the financial crisis, what's that old Warren Buffett line, right? When the tide goes out, you figure out who's swimming naked. Yeah. That's essentially what happened. The other two had to take government bailouts and do all sorts of stuff. And Ford basically said, no, 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 we, we started working on our problems two years ago. We, we don't need your money. We don't need your help. We're going we're gonna to get through this. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I'm often shocked at how little companies invest in training and onboarding. And I was, I was struck by the story about Pal Sudden Service, which is mm. this fast food chain in the Midwest that in a matter of seconds from the time you – place your order at one window, what is it, 18 seconds? Yeah, from wheels, till, wheel stop to wheels go, 18 seconds, yeah. Right, 18 and, seconds. And there are, there are never any mistakes. Their, their error rate is like one in 3,000. Yeah. I, I feel like, I, unfortunately, one of my kids loves McDonald's. I say unfortunately because try as we might to only be a Chick-fil-A house, uh, he loves the nuggets <laughs> from McDonald's more. And I feel like their error rate is like one out of every two. Right, I feel yeah, like they never actually or, get it right, or or two out of every one, which statistically doesn't make sense, but <laughs> right, it seems right. that way. And and I was fascinated by the story where you say that before a new hire can work in the kitchen, they get 120 hours of training. Yeah, and I think about it. This is in a fast food restaurant, whereas I get businesses where like, well, we just hired these new salespeople, and it's an average compensation of six figures a year. And well, what's your training and onboarding? Well, we just told them to go after their territory. And I'm like, oh my God, yeah. like, what are you doing? No, and then and then on a selling side, even the ones, this is this is my experience. Before I went back to grad school, I, I sold uh, in pharmaceuticals. And this was my experience too. Even on the sales side, we sent, if we do two or three weeks of primary training, right? Then we undercut all of that because we put them back out in the field and some, some well-intentioned but wrong manager goes, okay, well now I'm gonna tell you how it really works. Yeah. And then just shares his or her opinion on how to do it all, right? And so this is totally different. It's a coordinated you know, training center, training supplemented by a manager. Every leader in the company has to spend 10% of their week training other people, including the CEO, right? So the CEO still walks over to the training center and facilitates certain things because they all have to do 10%. They get regular quizzes. I, I actually love this. They get regular quizzes to make sure they're up to date on processes and products and, and all of that sort of thing but cheating is encouraged. What happens is you show up to your shift and they give you like, here's your, here's your quiz, your checkup. They call it a calibration. It's 20 questions. You need to submit it by the end of your shift. But if you don't know the answer, you can go 
walk to somebody else who's working the floor and say, hey, I don't know the answer to this one. Can you help me? Right. So there's still a camaraderie there. There's still a, a we all need each other because we're going to have a, a brain fart. We're going to forget something and, and need the other team for it. Uh, and, and then, you know, it's, it's funny to me because we're talking about fast food, right? We're talking about one of the most boring sort of menial jobs ever. And yet that's not what happens. Turnover rates are, are, are ridiculously low compared to the rest of the industry at the manager level. It's about 1% a year at the manager and store manager level. And, it, and it's because if you really do invest that much in people, then they start to feel like their work is actually that important. Yeah. Right. And, and they know they're working with other people that want to perform at that level so they stay much more motivated, right? At the, at the end of the day, I mean, I, I can summarize the entire book in, in a sentence, a compound sentence, but a sentence, which is that people want to do work that matters and they want to work for leaders who tell them they matter, right? Yeah. And, and that's, Powell's is a great example of being able to, all, all of the stories in the book are a great example of being able to do that, right? To tell people the work they're doing matters, give them what they need to succeed in that job, right? Which is another way of saying that you matter because we're actually going to equip you to succeed. That's great. I want to I want to wrap up with this one thing that that caught my attention. That's just emblematic of how helpful this book is. And so when we talk about the idea of getting into what motivates other people, you give kind of a formula where you say, "Look, here's this check-in to do with people that has them basically answer the question: I'm at my best when this happens. I'm at my worst when this happens. You can count on me to do this. And what I need from you is fill in the blank." And that little exercise with a team, I imagine, provides amazing insight and comfort for people to work together. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it's exactly what you're talking about with the, the personality test example you used. This gives me energy. This gives me not. In, in the book, we call that a manual of me or a user's manual for an individual. So if, if you I mean, the single fastest way you can implement this with your team is those exact four questions. Like send them out ahead of time and say, hey, next week when we have our regular weekly all hands meeting, I'd love to spend just 20 minutes reviewing those answers. And, and those are the four questions, right? I'm at my best, I'm at my worst, meaning what activities am I at my best, most motivated, et cetera? What are a real drain on me? You might find out that somebody's at a best when somebody else is at a worst and you can switch tasks. But then I love the other two questions too, which is, you know, you can count on me, meaning here's where I can help you. And what I need from you, meaning here's where I'll need help as a team. And so yeah. you get so much of that clarity of team we were talking about earlier and so many ideas for how we can collaborate and help each other. And, and you know, truthfully, I think selling is an area where this is needed more so than any anything else. Because in a lot of, especially large sales organizations, we might have a, a manager or a sales team leader who sees... Uh, that she's leading a team, but those individual nine people see themselves as competition with each other. Yeah. And that's a huge problem for the organization. And unless we start to have that conversation about here's how we can help each other and support each other. And then as a team, we all win because we're still going to be ranked higher than the rest of the organization, right? That can have a tremendous impact in a very short period of time on your teams. Awesome. All right. Let me, let me give a quick 30 second recap of what I think are the key takeaways for people then you, you have opportunity for rebuttal to fix the things that I didn't include. All right. All right. And, um, and then I want to make sure that people know where to get the book and where to contact you. But the, the first thing is that the idea of company culture and mission and purpose is not as important. We can't just dictate this. It's more about how do we create the interoperability with teams. All top performing teams have a common understanding this idea of psychological safety where it's okay to give feedback that may not be what people want to hear. And this idea of pro-social purpose, knowing that their work matters 
and for that matter, that they matter to the organization. I love the quote of talent doesn't make the team, the team makes the talent. And we want to make sure that we give people an environment where they can share what works for them, what doesn't work for them, where they need help, where they can contribute to others. Because once we get that cohesive element of a team working together, not at odds with each other, we get to much higher performance. And there are countless stories in this book that share those examples. So David, what did I miss? And then let's make sure that people know where to learn more about you and where to get the book. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm going to do this in the same side selling uh, improv game format, right? Yeah. And what I loved about that <laughs> was not only the conciseness of hitting uh, all of the points, uh, the emphasis on that team culture and how to get a team to collaborate. What I would add is probably just that if you got a kick out of Ian and I's banter, that tone of voice is in the, the, the book as well. It so is. If, you, if you're not in it for the takeaway, please read it for the, the jokes and, and the random asides um, and, and what would have you. But really, I, I guess the only other, on a serious note, the only other thing I would add is just to reiterate this, that this is a book for every leader at every level. If you're a CEO and you just wanna know how to get your senior leadership team to work more like a team, awesome. If you're a new manager, even if you're just an influential team member who's trying to position themselves to be a leader one day, every influential person in the organization is responsible for the culture of their team, right? Period, full stop. Every leader at every level is chief culture officer for their specific team. And so we gotta take that seriously, start building that sense of common understanding, psych safety, pro-social purpose, start telling people that their work matters and that they matter to you. And if you do that, you're gonna move the needle faster than you think on helping your team do their best work ever, helping them be the best version of a team that you've led um, ever. Easiest place to find, show notes for this episode is probably the easiest place to find this book. So sure. swipe up or double tap or whatever your app does to show you those, go there. If you're driving and you can't even figure that out, David Burkis is a really unique name. There's me and a 24 year old Hungarian filmmaker and that's it for the internet on David Burkis. So if you type it into Google, you'll find me on whatever socials you want, you'll find the book, so, so just and do that. And it's dot com, And um, yeah. it's just great insight and I'm telling you, I thoroughly enjoyed the book. If someone had a book that isn't great, they wouldn't be on here. But <laughs> there are many books that I read where I'm like, yeah, it was a good book and it wasn't necessarily something that was new or different. And this, I was just like, man, that's a great, oh, that's a great thing. Oh, I love that little aside that he put in here. And I was laughing and I was learning and um, really enjoyable stuff. And I've known you forever. So that's why I'm so surprised at how, um, <laughs> <laughs> at how great it was, David. But really, thanks so much. This was, it was, it was a, uh, I love the conversation, love the book. And I hope people run out and get it. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. <laughs> 